You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I had the pleasure of meeting today's guest earlier this year in May of 2023 at the Word on the Street Festival in Toronto. As an aside, in case you don't know the Word on the Street Festival, it's a spectacular venue with rows upon rows of kiosks representing publishers and authors and all manner of literature. It's worth making the trip to Toronto for the purposes of visiting this amazing festival. Just be prepared to walk away with a huge bag of books that you'll have to lug with you in your suitcase. As I say, I met today's guest, Amy Jones, at this festival where I interviewed her alongside two other wonderful authors, Mi'kmaq writer Amanda Peters and Elise Friedman. But I couldn't get the subject of Jones's new work out of my mind. It's in part about a manatee, those gorgeous and elegant water mammals that slowly meander through bodies of water. Sightings were often mistaken for mermaids back in the 1700s. I actually saw one myself on a trip down south several years ago, and I was told that such a sighting is a fairly rare occurrence. I felt the privilege of being able to witness them in their habitat firsthand. They're just gorgeous. In relation to this novel, I also couldn't stop thinking about how we create value systems. How do we decide what's really important to us and for us? And how at times, as is being painfully clear in the current environmental crisis, that those systems are not always best for us personally and for a larger global community. Well, before I delve further into the novel, I'd like you to know a little bit more about Amy Jones, editor, creative writing instructor, and best-selling novelist. She's the author of Every Little Piece of Me, published by McClellan and Stewart in 2019, and the Stephen Leacock Medal-nominated We're All in This Together, published by McClellan and Stewart in 2016, which was adapted into a feature film in 2021. Her debut short fiction collection, What Boys Like, won the Metcalf Rook Award and was shortlisted for the Relit Award. Her third novel, Pebble and Dove, which tells the story of three generations of women brought together by their shared love of a captive manatee, was published on May 30th, 2023 with McClelland and Stewart. Amy is the program director of the Flying Book School of Reading and Writing and a frequent mentor in their mentorship program. Originally from Halifax, she currently lives in Hamilton, Ontario with her husband, writer Andrew F. Sullivan, and her rescue dog, Iggy. Well, the book we're speaking about today is, in fact, Pebble and Dove, which, as I say, is about these three generations of women, and it's recounted in this refreshing, vibrant narrative voice, or rather narrative voices, since the story is actually told from several different points of view. It's set in part in this abandoned Flamingo Key Aquarium located in a ship in Florida, where these generations of women in a family experience the added pressure on fault lines of personal history that then lead to several key conflicts. I've addressed mother-daughter relationships in several episodes before, especially the Mother's Day episode, as you, my listeners, know. Well, this book also tackles this subject, but with grace and humor and compassion, 
One of the main characters, Lauren, drives herself and her teenage daughter, Dove, to her late mother's rundown trailer in the trailer park in Florida. And that's where all kinds of secrets are revealed and the action unfolds. The story may in part be about how this family is falling apart, but it's also about how that family comes together. And it all circles around this 1,000-pound aquatic mammal, a manatee named Pebble. The title thus emerges from the teenage daughter, Dove, and her relationship with the manatee, Pebble. As their relationship highlights, the novel is about how we choose what's valuable, what's worth preserving, and how we decide what's worth just letting go. This is my interview with Amy Jones. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. As we both know, I had the opportunity to interview you earlier, so I'll, I'll come back to that. But in the meantime, I also happen to notice that you'll be participating in a panel for the Ian Mills Literary Festival on September 9th about finding your voice alongside Ali Hassan and Uzma Jalal, I think it's Jalaluddin. And so I thought, oh my gosh, you're the perfect person for this because you have such a distinct literary voice. So I wondered, without giving very much away, I think people should register for that event, but could you give us a sneak peek? How did you find your voice? You know, whatever that means. Oh, I found my voice in the back of my closet. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of a it's kind of a funny phrase, um, and this is great because this will give me an opportunity to practice a little bit of what I'm going to say uh, when I'm around Ali and Uzma, who are two writers who I admire very deeply. Yeah, I mean, I. I mean, I started writing when I was young, like I'm sure a lot of writers tell you, and I gave it up for a little while and I came back to it sort of in my late 20s, early 30s. And Oh, you're still young. <laughs> <laughs> it felt like I gave it up for a very long time, but, but I think the whole time, you know, I was always involved in different creative pursuits and artistic communities. And when I went back to writing, I, I was sort of all over the place when I first started. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I started writing short fiction just because I think, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I do love short fiction as a form. I, mm -hmm. And I, I don't think it's necessarily like my milieu, but it was a really great place for me to try out a lot of things. And one of the things that I learned really quickly is that I wanted to write, I mean, I, I want to write things that I like to read, right? Like the type of things mm -hmm. that I like to read. Um, and I, I like to bring... I like to bring joy to people. Like I like to entertain people and I like to make them laugh and think and feel, but ultimately I want people to have a good time when they're reading my books. Mm. So I think when I first started thinking about what I really, how I really wanted to build my career and I started writing, moving into writing novels, which I took to immediately and I loved so much, you know, these were a lot of the elements that I wanted to bring in. Like I, I am not a, an overly serious person. Um, I have, I try to, um, I like to think I have a good sense of humor um, and I try to go through life sort of a little bit lightheartedly as, as lightheartedly as I can, given the, the things that are happening in the world. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it feels like there's so much, so much really just awful things happening in the world that like, sometimes it, it's important to look at the, the brighter side of things. So, you know, I do approach things with a lot of humor, but also, you know, I also knew I really wanted to write about, I love to write about families. <laughs> um, yes, it's clear. It's very yeah. clear. Yes. And I mean, I, I, I'm interested in dynamics between people, regardless of their relationships. So not just 
not just like family that you're related to, but also like chosen family. I've written stories about really deep friendships as well. And I think bringing those two together was really where I, I, I think my voice started to solidify a little bit, bringing in the idea of looking at these different dynamics and these different relationships with, with humor and I guess quirkiness, people call my work quirky yes. quite often. Um, I guess yes. I have a little bit of a skewed way of looking at the world as well. So it's a really lovely way. So you haven't heard my introduction, but in fact, what I say is that you have this sense of grace and humor and compassion. Oh, I love that. Thank you. And I, <laughs> I really enjoyed that. And it was the novel was fundamentally inspiring too. Right, showing how collective action could actually evoke change. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> so we can come back to that. So that's just in a sort of advance. If you want to hear Amy Jones again, <laughs> she'll be at the Eden Mills Festival on September 9th. But let's turn to Pebble and Dove. So as you know, I first read the book and talked about it uh, with you at the Word on the Street Festival. And I say in my introduction to this particular episode that I really couldn't get that novel out of my head. I've been pushing it on different people. You must read this book. <laughs> so there are a number of plot twists that come from secrets, deliberate or not. For example, the grandmother Imogen supposedly had amassed this fortune and her daughter Lauren has no idea what happened to it. What did her mother do with that money? Did she hide it? Is it in a secret bank account somewhere? How did her mother end up at Swaying Palms in Florida? So are the secrets the cause or the result of family dysfunction or both? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. In this case, Lauren and Imogen have had a very fraught relationship from the beginning. Imogen had a lot of conflicting feelings about being a mother and ultimately ended up sort of foisting Lauren off on her sister to raise her while she she pursued her career and was in and out of Lauren's life, which clearly Lauren began to resent as she grew older. And so I think in some ways the secrets become, the secrets are a result of the dysfunction in the family because they don't feel comfortable communicating with one another. They haven't learned how to communicate with one another. And I think later on, it becomes a thing where they feel like, even though they do have a little bit of a relationship, it's so tenuous that anything that they might divulge to the other, <laughs> any of these like yeah, secrets that they keep yeah. might break that bond, might send the other running and and in the end ultimately it does and you know one of the things that I that I really wanted to explore in the book and this isn't really giving a spoiler because you find out at the very beginning that Imogen has passed away and so Lauren mm -hmm. is learning all the all of these things about her after sort of in retrospect that there are just some things that no matter how close you are with someone no matter how much you love them um, no matter how intimate you are you're just never going to truly know everything about them and that sometimes in Lauren's case it's the most extreme because her mother has already passed so the things that she's learning she's gleaning from other people who knew her well but you know the sort of I think the the one of the overarching ideas is this idea that like you have to let that go and love them anyway even though you know that you're never going to know all of these things about them so I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah. It does. The <laughs> secrets are both a, a function of the dysfunction. Yes. But they also, I think, perpetuate or worsen the dysfunction. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because they, they, I mean, they keep so much from one another that eventually it becomes very clear that, you know, there's so much about each other that they're not telling 
each other. And, you know, this is something that you see begin to perpetuate in Lauren's relationship with her daughter as well, that I feel like, you know, I'm hoping, (laughs) I don't know what my characters do after the book is over, but I'm hoping, (laughs) I'm hoping that perhaps what, what Lauren has learned during the course of this novel, she is able to apply to her relationship. I think we see that starting to happen uh, near the end of the novel where she's, she's taking these lessons and trying to be more open with her daughter trying to let her into the way that she feels and um, you know some of the things that she's been keeping secret secret from her. That's it. There's the, these moments of revelation, but also compassion. It's what I was saying earlier. And you could have chosen to write this novel that is extremely painful. And I mean, it is painful, but there's so much levity, so much humor too, that it does make it such a a wonderful read. It's really such a, oh, I wanted, so <laughs> I wanted the sequel. My course part two. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the first person to say that. <laughs> so there may be, let's, let's, let's hope, let's hope. Um, okay. So are readers part of the secrets? So that's the next part of the questions. It's really a two part question. Are readers part of the secrets that some of the characters hold or are these secrets withheld from the reader? Again, I think it's both. I mean, one of the things that I really love to do is like the novel is told from perspectives, uh, from many different perspectives. So there's five different characters that have voices within the within the novel, four main sort of main ones. And I guess if you include Pebble, there's six, I think. <laughs> I'm counting right. Um, <laughs> we, should, we should let the listeners know that Pebble is the manatee. Is the manatee, yes. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so I think I, I, I'm always really attracted to that type of writing. And I mean, that's the type of novel I like to read because I love the idea of being able to see different events and different, you know, just different things that happen in the novel through different perspectives mm-hmm. uh, through of characters who have experienced the same thing. So I love sort of having that juxtaposition of like, you know, the way Lauren remembers something that happened in their childhood, in her childhood and the way her, the way her mother remembers it. And I think that both of those perspectives are not likely the truth. (laughs) Um, But I think this allows the reader to exist in that space between that may be closer to the truth than either of them are willing to get. So in that sense, I think the reader, the reader is participating in having secrets, because there's a lot of things that the reader knows and understands about the characters that they don't know and understand about themselves, not just because they can see these other perspectives and hear, and hear the secrets that the other characters hold, but because they can see these events from two different angles. And so they can see that that middle ground that the other characters in the book can't. The narrative strategy is brilliant. So it is about five, if we include Pebble's voice, possibly yes. six different perspectives. <laughs> so it took me a little bit. I was, as I began to read it, oh, this is a new perspective. Aha, this is another perspective, which I really also appreciated. It takes a considerable skill to do something like that. So I wonder if you would explain what other reasons you had for adopting those various perspectives. You've already identified one, and that is, mm-hmm. again, quite skillful. You're allowing the reader to navigate and understand more than the individual characters. We have this larger composite. What are the other reasons for this kind of strategy? Um, yeah, there's there's definitely several, um, and I've been whittling it down. <laughs> well, I guess my last my last novel only had two perspectives, but my first novel had nine. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, and they weren't all sort of consistent. Some of them were one offs. Like in this one, there there is also a one off, which is something that I love to do, where like you see a character through the whole novel one way, and then all of a sudden you're given one tiny little glimpse into who they are. 
that kind of throws everything on its head. But in terms of like the main perspectives, they, they grow in layers for me when I'm writing. So mm-hmm. I originally conceive every time I think I'm going to write a straightforward novel that has one perspective <laughs> and one timeline and just make it all chronological. And it never works out that way. So as much as I love Lauren, I started with Lauren and as much as I love her as a character, it was a lot to be with her <laughs> through the whole novel. She She's a, a messy kind of dysfunctional human and being in her head through through the whole story felt felt to me a little bit claustrophobic (laughs) and then and then I also realized while I was writing that first draft that um I really did need to have Dove's perspective Dove is her daughter Dove is her daughter yes and just because there was there is this sort of big secret between the two of them that neither of them really knows is a secret. They just don't know, or they don't, they haven't clued in. There's like a miscommunication mm-hmm. about, so there was no way to, to convey that to the reader without bringing Dove's perspective in. And so I started weaving her perspective in, and then I, I realized that there was this whole other part of the story that was missing. And there was only one person who could tell it. And it was Ray, who is the caretaker of Pebble. And without Ray, there's a lot of, things that the reader wasn't going to be able to understand about the um, about the aquarium where Pebble lives and about her life and about her connection to Imogen. And I think it's it, mostly because it's everything is so deeply interconnected, but everybody only knows a little bit here and there about different things. So it's not only, you know, as we were talking about before, about allowing the reader to see this like overarching narrative that the other, that the characters in the book can't or this overarching um, story it's also you know narratively to actually help the reader understand the all those different elements of the story so you know the history of the aquarium where pebble resides or like the dynamics of the characters who live in swaying palms which Imogen's perspective brought in a little bit when she was the final one I was very close to the end of writing the novel and my editor suggested I try bringing Imogen's perspective in and I thought oh no I was like I'm done (laughs) I can't write anymore Uh, for me like it's very hard to get once I've been in the revising headspace hard to get back into like that creating that drafting headspace but I did it and it actually came quite easily because by this point I knew her I knew her very well thank you I'm glad to hear that um and it just it added that extra that element of understanding of sort of you know that the other side of things so I mean I guess it's it's very it is really all about tying that narrative together and making all of the puzzle pieces fit so that the reader can understand the bigger picture that you, that the characters may not understand. I actually enjoyed the fact that you brought in Imogen because it offers us different templates of motherhood, right? So she's a completely yes. different mother than Lauren is. Yes. <laughs> but I admire them both. There, I don't feel any sense of judgment for the different types of engagement or lack thereof that they offer right so I wondered how much you were thinking through ideas of motherhood as you approach the novel oh yeah absolutely it it always seems I always I mean it's kind of a morbid joke but like joking about the fact that like I I am writing about mothers and daughters all the time having neither a mother nor a daughter um but you know I I think a lot about uh generations of of women like I had I had I did have a mother who I was very close to and a grandmother as well who I was also very close to um and you know seeing the way that different it it was almost for me looking at it as a giant pendulum swing in a way Mm -hmm. so 
you know, my, when I think about uh, my grandmother who was maybe a little bit more like Imogen and then seeing the pendulum swing way over here <laughs> towards my mother, who was maybe a little, a little bit more like Lauren. I can say this because neither of them are going to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> but, you know, I, I just see, I, I see the, the reactions, the reactiveness of maybe the next generation to not repeat the mm-hmm. same mistakes that their parents made in parenting, but also in, in life exactly. as well. You know, and of, of course, you know, throughout my own life, I thought a lot about, you know, that balance of family and career and how not having children myself, I, I look at other writers who have children and it just, I just can't even wrap my head around the mind. (laughs) Honestly, it boggles the mind. It really does. And, you know, I, I often also think about the way, and I've had this conversation with friends of mine who are parents and artists about the way that being a parent changes your art. Mm -hmm. And I, I saw Imogen as being incredibly resistant to that and very much, you know, Imogen's a photographer and she had Lauren a little bit later in life. And so her praxis was very solidified by that point. And uh, I think she was very scared once Lauren came along to see how that, how her art was going to, to change and very resistant and very sort of, you know, no, this isn't going to change anything. I'm still going to create the same art that I have. And for her, that meant having to sort of push Lauren aside Mm -hmm. a little bit. And, you know, she, obviously came to regret that a little bit later in life, but not necessarily, she didn't necessarily regret, you know, the, the focus on her career aspect of it. I think she, she was able to see when she was looking back that there was a way that she could have both. Exactly. But the real difficulty in managing both, we've just been discussing that, right? Even as, as writers or critics, it's very difficult. I, like you don't have a mother or a child. And I, I think, how do people do it? Yes, I know. That is with the children. (laughs) Although both, I mean, yeah, I see people like of, you know, my, many of my friends are sort of in that spot now where they're caring for their parents as well as their children. And, you know, I I have nothing but uh, admiration, but also compassion. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, compassion. Exactly. Yes, exactly. That's it. But also just, you know, I, I can't even, I can't even fathom how, how they're able to to actually make it all work. It's... Yeah, same, same. <laughs> so we've been talking about the female characters, but let's talk about the manatee, which is a, also a key figure mm-hmm. in the novel. And I adore, I mean, I see manatees everywhere now. <laughs> so how did you come to decide to represent this fascinating sea creature? I'm, I'm a big animal person generally. And, it, and, and also a big... Uh, like marine mammal person. I grew up on the East Coast and I spent a lot of time on the water when I was growing up. And also my my parents spent a lot of time in Florida. My grandparents also <laughs> spent a lot of time in Florida. They have a, they've had a trailer there uh, since I think my grandparents bought it in the 60s. And it has not, it's very similar. I, I, made, I made no bones to my parents about the fact that I was completely stealing everything about the trailer to put in to make this trailer. <laughs> It's like everything in it from the rock that you have to use to close the bathroom door to, you know, the termites, all of it. It's all great um, and rich detail. I really enjoyed that part of it. It, ma- good, it, good, made, good. it, it made it really real. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> um, but also, you know, I, t- I took obviously some liberties. Um, this is why, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but this is why I always like fictionalized places. My books, and I very rarely talk about a real city or 
building or whatever, because I just want to make stuff <laughs> about it. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've always had this fascination with sea creatures, you know, probably like most kids, I really wanted to be a marine biologist when I grew up, but did not do well in science. <laughs> and yeah, I was I was visiting my parents in Florida, maybe a decade ago, and we were kayaking and we met a manatee while we were kayaking, very similar to the scene in the book. And as soon as I saw that like they're just they're so curious and mm-hmm. just playful and very peaceful they don't have any predators they're vegetarians they just eat seagrass and they just float around not bothering anybody nobody bothers them it's it, I just like I felt very deep kinship yeah. with, with manatees and then um, we visited uh, the oldest living manatee in captivity in the in Florida as well who sadly passed away just before I started writing this book and his story Pebble's story sort of mirrors his a little bit and in the early days and it was a very similar sort of situation and it was such a devastating loss because he was I I always forget the actual age but I think it was like late 60s early 70s he was quite old and he had been living in captivity since a baby and he passed unfortunately due to an accident and so you know I started yeah, it was it was really it was really horrible. And I started thinking about, you know, because because so many manatees die in the wild due to sort of environmental factors. I was reading about that. And, and actually yeah. in preparation for speaking with you today, I looked that up and Oh wonderful. <laughs> well, not or or not so not, wonderful. Not wonderful the manatees, but wonderful <laughs> I'm really glad to, that people like so many people now know so much more about manatees and, you know, have this awareness. I mean one of the biggest threats facing them right now is um, the depletion of seagrass yes. because of rising ocean temperatures and um so you know there's a lot of programs in florida that have been trying to feed manatees but i think also a lot of times people think oh i should go out and feed a manatee which is not the way to go (laughs) there's been like seagrass regrowth programs and things like that that have that have been sort of helping with that but you know because the majority of the the fatalities of manatees in the wild are due to these like outside factors I started thinking about, you know, just with my magical thinking, I was like, could a manatee live forever if it was in captivity? Who knows how long they could live because without humankind's intervention? So that was that was one of the other sort of that was when I decided, okay, I'm going to write about write about this manatee. And you know, I think there's there's a lot of things that you know, I, I wanted the manatee to not just be metaphorical. <laughs> you know, I I wanted her to be real more of a character than just sort of this metaphorical being that this magical being that brings everybody together. And so it was important for me to have the focus be on them, not only using her Mm -hmm. as a a conduit to find each other again, but also to externalize that and actually find a way to make her life better as well. You could have, you're right. You could have approached it as a symbol. Yeah. Uh, I did. I did see some elements of that, but you're right that there's the character is so real. Again, you really evoke <laughs> elements of this manatee. I was absolutely fascinated, and of course, it's also about friendship, right? The friendship or or kinship was the word that you mm-hmm. had used earlier, right? The kinship between Dove and Pebble, mm-hmm. but also kinship as a kind of framework in the novel, right? I'm thinking of Imogen's friend in the park who has like they have a falling out but the really deep (laughs) friendships that surface yes so that's also an important aspect isn't it to the novel 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, Dove is a character who feels um, a little bit of a, as an outsider, right? Um, in her school, she's she's fourteen. She's at a, an age when a lot of us feel like outsiders, even yes. if it doesn't necessarily manifest outwardly. Um, you know, and she's sort of trying to figure out who she is and who she wants to be. And a lot of that was for her guided by her grandmother uh, when she was alive, and because she she sort of had a relationship with her and. Once she no longer had access to her grandmother in that way, she, I think in some ways, in her in her mind, she sort mm. of conflated the two a little bit because uh, she came to find Pebble through her grandmother. And then, you know, being, being a kid and being very imaginative sort of in some ways, I think, imagined mm. or felt her grandmother's spirit, at least in the aquarium and uh, sort of latched onto Pebble in that way. But I think that was the that was the genesis of their relationship. And I think it grew. I hope to show that it grew throughout the novel. It does, yeah. You did successfully show that. Yeah, yes. and it, I think in that in that respect, it allowed Dove to, you know, to get to that point where she wasn't just. I mean, not to say that she was necessarily like super self centered kid or anything like that, but like She's there is a, not. No, but there's a point in there's a point when you're a teenager where you know you you start to make that shift from your world being so insular and just yourself and your own thoughts and ideas and the, the few people around you to the, the wider world and being able to, you know, grow your empathy. And I think, you know, her focusing on Pebble and her own well-being helped Dove, helped Dove grow her own empathy and learn to sort of, to channel a lot of those feelings that she had been having about where she fits in the world um, and about how to do, do the right thing. Like she's very focused on wanting to be a good person and do the right thing. And, you know, but she doesn't really always know where to put that. And Pebble gave her a place for that. That's one of the remarkable aspects of the novel. So one of the messages I took away from the book was the sense of responsibility that this younger generation is now tasked with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the real initiative that they might take, I don't want to give too much away by saying any of this, and what they might actually accomplish. And so I thought of that when, in relation to Dove. And I thought she was such an inspiring character because of what happens. What's, what are some of the takeaway messages for you? That was what I took away from mm-hmm. it, but that there might be others. What are some of the takeaway messages you wanted your readers to experience? Oh, I mean, this is something that I've been asked <laughs> many times <laughs> and I'm still, I'm still not a hundred percent sure because I, I always feel like, you know, I, I always, I rely on readers to tell me what my book is about a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I, when I'm writing it, I'm, I'm so, I, I become so deeply just a uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like I'm in a bubble, right? Like I, I'm not really able to see beyond the story. I'm so ensconced in it. And then once it gets published and it gets out in the world, that's when, and it's my favorite part of the process, honestly, is, <laughs> is uh, you know, talking to readers about my book. I absolutely love it. And, you know, when someone there, there's, there's been moments where uh, like just now when talking to you and hearing your interpretation of it, where I, I think, yes, yes, they, that's what I was going for. It's <laughs> exactly what I was going for. And, but, but in order for, for me to put it into words is a little bit more difficult. I mean, I obviously want people to, you know, on a, on a practical level, like I, I do hope that it helps people say it helps, but like that people feel compelled potentially to look into manatees to maybe think about their mm, own, not just manatees either, but like think about their own relationship with, with sort of the non-human animal world and see it a little bit differently. You know, I also hope that 
they're able to take away a sense of they're able to see things just like an open perspective I would say Mm -hmm. like I you know I, I I really hope that my writing in general allows people to sort of be able to see the world through through different eyes and maybe allows them to take that then through into their own life and have as you said a little bit more uh, compassion or empathy for the people around them who I mean I know that it's a giant cliche to say that like you know we all have our yeah. struggles we all everyone you know is is battling something is dealing with something and and just to like keep that in our hearts when we go out into the world you know, everyone has their secrets and, uh, and, you know, just to be mindful of that in the way that we treat others. Amy Jones, that was wonderful. That is exactly what the novel did for me. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> and I hope it does that for the listeners. Thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Getting Lit with Linda. I really appreciated it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a wonderful conversation, Linda. Thank you. And that was my interview with Amy Jones. Please join us for the next episode in which I'll be turning our attention to a darker chapter in Canadian history, the internment of Japanese Canadians and how they've been represented in literary texts in Canada. As always, thanks for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time... We hope you continue to get lit.